All right, we're going to be in the book of Judges this morning, chapter 19. If everything goes as planned, we'll be concluding the book today. We are at the conclusion of this book. It is the last five chapters. And uh, the last five chapters act as an appendix to everything else that has happened. This appendix has a purpose. It's to show us what uh, an ordinary person's everyday life was like during the period of the judges. So even though we're going to read isolated events, we're not supposed to understand this as isolated events. We're supposed to realize that this is what life was like during the entire period. Um, the, it's, uh, it's, it's wide, it's a, it's a landscape painting, it's broad brush strokes, uh, just to give us an idea of what it was like. And uh, this, the last five chapters are bookended with a beginning phrase and an ending phrase, and then it's repeated two or three more times throughout, but it basically says in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so uh, that's the characteristics of this time. It is a time where we see religious problems with the nation and social disorder. And so these last five chapters can be divided in half very easily. Uh, the first section has to do with the tribe of Dan, and that's what we looked at last Sunday. The last three chapters have to do with the tribe of Benjamin. And each one of these two sections about the tribe of Dan and about the tribe of Benjamin, each one of these two sections are introduced to us through the actions of a Levite. And so uh, we're going to begin reading in, ch in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a Levite living in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem and Judah as his concubine. But she was unfaithful to him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem and Judah. She was there for a period of four months. And then her husband got up and he went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. His servant and a couple of donkeys were with him. So she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the, the girl's father, detained him. And he stayed with him for three days. They ate, drank, and spent the nights there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat to keep up your strength, and then you can go. So they sat down, the two of them, and ate and drank together. Then the girl's father said to the man, Please agree to, to stay overnight and enjoy yourself. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed and spent the night there again. Verse 8. He got up early in the morning of the fifth day to leave, but the girl's father said to him, Please keep up your strength. So they waited until late afternoon, and the two of them ate. The man got up to go with his concubine and his servant when his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Look, night is coming. Please spend the night. See the day is almost over. Spend the night here. Enjoy yourself. And then you can get up early tomorrow for your journey and go home. But the man was unwilling to spend the night. He got up. He departed. And he arrived opposite Jebus. That's Jerusalem. The man had his two saddled donkeys and his concubine with him. And when they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Please, why not let us stop at the Jebusite city and spend the night there? 
But his master replied to him, We will not stop at a foreign city where there are no Israelites. Let's move on to Gibeah. Come on, he said. Let's try to reach one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. And so they continued on their journey, and, the, and as the sun set, as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. So they stopped to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in, and he sat down in the city square, but no one took them into their home to spend the night. So right off the bat here, we have a Levite who is living in the remote hill country of Ephraim. And so this is an indicator right there that the nation's spiritual life was in trouble because the Levite should have been living in one of the Levitical cities and serving in the tabernacle. The fact that he wasn't could be a testimony to his character and his religious uh, condition, his spiritual condition. But it's also uh, likely that the nation was not going to church. They were not supporting the tabernacle. And I have to ask you to prepare yourself because what we're going to be reading this morning, uh, women across the board are absolutely treated horribly. They are treated like they're nothing more than uh, a means to an end. And so we have a Levite here who's not living in one of the Levitical cities and serving in the tabernacle. Instead, he's in a hill, remote hill country of Ephraim and he has a concubine. Well, to have a concubine, that implies that you're married. So he's married and has a concubine. Um, this woman would have had inferior status. She wouldn't have been an equal with his wife. And this happens for a number of reasons. It could be because she was a slave. It could be because he married her without a dowry. You know, we don't really know, but concubines a lot of times gave birth to children because the wife was barren. But unmarried women in ancient times were, were vulnerable and they depended upon their families to support them. And if something were to happen to put that in jeopardy, the woman had limited options. A lot of times some were uneducated, some lacked a skill or a trade. And so believe it or not, becoming a concubine might be the best option. It's certainly better than being homeless or a prostitute. So it's a very different time. But it's important for us to remember that from the very beginning, God did not set it up like this. He created a beautiful order of a man, one man and one woman to become one and to love each other. That's God's design. That's his order. And so even though these situations existed, by no means does that mean that God approved of them. It's important for us to remember. And it tells us here that this woman was unfaithful to her husband. And that word unfaithful in the Hebrew has a secondary meaning, uh, the one that it's not usually means, which is uh, to be angry or to be mad or to have an argument or to have a quarrel. And it's actually that meaning that uh, the Septuagint and the Targums uh, adopted. Um, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, that's the Septuagint. And so in the Septuagint reading, it took that secondary Hebrew meaning and it said that she was angry with him. So that's why she left him. So uh, to be unfaithful doesn't necessarily mean that she had an affair, especially since we see that she left her husband to go back home to her dad, you know. 
not to another man, but to her dad. And so uh, the Targums, when after the captivity, when the Jewish people got to come back home with Ezra and Nehemiah in that period, um, you know, a lot of those folks did not know how to read Hebrew. And so they would paraphrase Hebrew uh, into, from, from Aramaic, into Aramaic. And so that's a Targum. It's a paraphrase from Hebrew into Aramaic. And so uh, the, the reading they use is that she despised him. And so it gives every indication that there's a possibility that it really wasn't her being unfaithful. I'm not sure that it matters in the, in the grand scheme of things. And we see here that they, uh, they, they finally left. And after everything I read, I just couldn't find anybody to ask the question, why the father-in-law kept trying to get his, this man to stay? Why was he doing that? What was his motivation? And the text does not tell us. But if we consider how this woman left him because she despised him, she didn't like him. And I think as we read on, we're going to find out that maybe she has very good reason but she goes home to dad and, uh, you know, obviously she would have told her dad why she left him, what was been, what's been going on, why this man is unbearable. And so when he comes to retrieve his daughter, I, I think he probably wined and dined him and tried to get him to fall in love with him and his family and where they lived and maybe he would stay. And maybe the dad would have more of an influence in what was happening in his daughter's life. But we don't really know. But after a while, he'd had enough. He was going back to Ephraim. So him and his servant, and his donkeys, and his concubine, they're heading out. And they come to Jerusalem. But it's a, it's a Jebusite city. It's not an Israelite city. And so this speaks to that very early period of the book of Judges. Jebus. And they... The slave, the, man, the, the servant said, hey, why don't we stay in Jerusalem? He says, no, this is a foreign city, there in verse 12, where there are no Israelites. And so they moved on, and the Bible tells us in verse 14 that the sun began to set as they neared Gibeah. Gibeah is only four miles northeast of Jerusalem. So they're not very far. They didn't make it that far. We remember this very mountainous, and once it gets dark, it's very difficult to travel through there. And so they decided to stop in Gibeah. And obviously this Levite thought that he was safe because he was staying in an Israelite's town. But unknowingly, these guys have clippity-clopped into Sodom and Gomorrah at nightfall. Verse 15. They stopped to go and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one took them into their home to spend the night. In the evening, an old man came in from his work in the field. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was residing in Gibeah, and the men of that place were Benjamites. When he looked up and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going and where do you come from? And he answered, well, we're traveling from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote hill country of Ephraim. That's where I'm from. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his home. Although we have both straw and feed for our donkeys and bread and wine for me, your female servant, and the young man with your servant, there's nothing we lack. Well, peace to you, said the old man. I'll, I'll take care of everything you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and fed the donkeys 
Then they washed their feet and ate and drank. And while they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, perverted, perverted men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. And the owner of the house went outside and he said to them, no, don't, don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't do this horrible thing. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Use them and do whatever you want to them. But don't do this horrible thing to this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine. So it's the Levite. And he took her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman... Um, Early that morning, the woman... The woman made her way back, and as it was getting light, she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. And when her master got up in the morning, opened the door of the house, and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. And in those endearing, loving words, he said, Get up, let's go. But there was no response. So the man put her on his donkey and he set out for home. When he entered his house, he picked up a knife and he took hold of his concubine and cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and he sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen since the day of the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt to this day. Think it over, discuss it, speak up. Well, we see here that when they first came into Gibeah, they went to the town square, and the custom would be that if you were a traveler, people would take you into your house as a matter of hospitality. And nobody did that. There was an old man who'd been working out in the field, and he came and he saw him, and he took him into his home. But he was from Ephraim. He wasn't even from Gibeah. It says here that these were perverted men of the city. So this is the, the biblical view of homosexuality. What we're reading here nearly parallels what happened in Genesis chapter 19 in Sodom. You'll remember that Lot lived in Sodom. And two travelers, two men travelers came and he brought them into his home from the square, not knowing that they were actually angels. And when the city was surrounded by perverted men, wanting their two men guests to be taken outside and given to them, Lot offered them his two virgin daughters. But instead the angels blew light into their faces and knocked them all down and blinded them. Remember, you had, to, you had to take them by the hand and drag them out of that city. Why is it compared so closely? Why are, why are these two events so close? It's 
having fun. Um, it's because God wants us to see that as bad as things were in Sodom and Gomorrah, this is happening in Israel. Among people who are supposed to be his people. Later, the, the prophet Hosea would, would look back on this period of time as he was addressing Israel's sin, and he would say, your sin is like the days of Gibeah. In chapter 20, all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba, and you will remember that uh, in our study last Sunday that the tribe of Dan left their inheritance and they traveled way north. And so what this is telling us is from the north to the south, all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead came out. And so even east of the Jordan River, remember the land of Gilead. They came out and the, and they com and the community assembled as one body before the Lord at Mizpah. And Mizpah is about six miles north of Jerusalem. So we haven't gotten very far. Bethlehem is about six miles southwest of Jerusalem. We traveled to Jerusalem and then a little bit further, four more miles to get to Gibeah. And if you were to go two more miles, you'd be in Mizpah. And this is where this meeting of minds is. Verse 2. The leaders of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 armed foot soldiers. And the Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. <coughs> The Israelites asked, tell us how did this outrage occur? So just in case we're missing it, they're all convening because these body parts have been sent to all 12 of the tribes. The Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, answered. He said, I went to Gibeah and Benjamin with my concubine to spend the night. Citizens of Gibeah ganged up on me and surrounded the house at night. They intended to kill me, but they raped my concubine and she died. Then I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout Israel's territory because they committed a horrible shame in Israel. Look, all of you are Israelites. Give me your judgment and verdict here and now. Then all the people stood united and said, none of us will go to his tent or return to his house. Now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go against it by lot. We will take 10 men out of every 100 and all the tribes of Israel, 100 out of every 1,000, 1,000 of every 10,000 to get provisions for the people when they go to Gibeah and Benjamin to punish them for all the horror they did in Israel. What's real important here is that we notice in verse 3 that Benjamin heard about the meeting. So there was a, a big hearing, a big meeting about Benjamin, but Benjamin was not invited. And then we see how the uh, Levite described the events. There's some details there he left out, isn't there? He uh, revised history, or he told the story in such a, such a way for the desired outcome. Well, we all do that. We all make ourselves the hero of our own story, the victim, the innocent victim. You know, this is what we do. So when we tell somebody a story or 
describe something that's happened so often we do it to get the desired response. Proverbs 18.17 says, The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. In other words, it's always a good idea to hear both sides of the story. This is why in the Mosaic Law, you had to have two or more witnesses before anybody could be convicted of a crime, any crime, especially death, to be executed. That's Deuteronomy 17.6, in case you're wondering. And not only that, so, so basically what we're doing here is we're, we're convicting Benjamin when he's not even present. He's not being able to defend himself. There's nobody there giving the other side of the story at all. But the Mosaic Law says that there has to be two more witnesses before you go doing these kind of things. You don't just go on one person's word. And there needs to be justice. The punishment needs to be proportionate. And so an eye for an eye, that doesn't mean you pluck out an eye. What it's trying to say is, is that uh, the punishment needs to be reasonable and proportionate and appropriate for what has happened. Well, they decided that they were going to go and, and, and punish Benjamin. They'd already decided. The Levite, he said, you know, the Levite here who, remember, the Levites taught the law. And so here's the Levite, he's saying, look, give me your judgment and your verdict right now. So he knew he was doing everything wrong. And so much of all that we're reading is just a complete disaster. It's like I said last week, you never know where to start to try to fix this mess. Everybody is doing something horrible and wrong. And so even though Benjamin has been convicted without a fair trial, basically, her response was wrong. Because what's going to happen is they're going to go to Benjamin, they're going to say, give us these guys. These guys have to face judgment. And Benjamin's going to say no. So even though it was an improper hearing, Benjamin responded wrongly too and actually incurred God's judgment on the entire tribe. Two wrongs do not make a right. And we've got to get all the way through chapter 21. And so I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm going to basically uh, summarize what's going to happen from the rest of the chapter in chapter 20. In verse 13, they come over to Benjamin and they say, hand over the perverted men of Gibeah. And Benjamin said, no. Instead, they went and rallied their troops, got their army together to fight. The Bible tells us that the Israelite tribes had an army of 400,000. Benjamin had an army of 26,000. So they're greatly outnumbered. And it also tells us that they had 700 choice men who were amazing with a slingshot. They could hit a hare with a slingshot. 700 guys. And they were left-handed. It's kind of an interesting fact. Left-handed. Benjamin means right-handed. 
So the people of Israel, they went to Bethel where the tabernacle was, and they inquired of the Lord, and they asked him, should we go fight against Benjamin? And God said, yeah, fight him. And so they went and they fought Benjamin, and Benjamin won. The tribe of Israel lost 22,000 men. And so they limped back to Bethel. They limped back to the tabernacle and said, God, you know, should we go up against him again? And God said, yeah, go against him again. And they went against him again, and this time Benjamin won a second time. And they lost 18,000. So now the Israelites have lost 40,000 men. Now they came back to Bethel, they came back to the tabernacle, and the Bible tells us that the entire, in verse 26, the whole Israelite army went to Bethel. They all went this time. And they wept and they sat before the Lord. They stayed there. They fasted, and that day they fasted until evening. They offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord, and then they inquired of Him. And they said, should we again fight against our brothers, the Benjamites, or should we stop? And then in verse 28, there's an amazing fact, shocking fact. We find out that when they went to Bethel, when they went to the tabernacle, it was Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, who was serving before the temple. Letting us know that all of this has happened so quickly after Joshua and Aaron died. This is how fast everything fell apart. Well, they went back again, and you guessed right, Benjamin fell. God gave them over to the other tribes. But the reason in verse 35 is that the Lord defeated Benjamin. Up to that point, they were going in their own strength. They were using God as some kind of an idol, like an ephod. You go, you know, you roll the dice, is, is the answer going to be yes or is it going to be no? But the third time, they came together as one and they fell on their face and they stayed before God and they offered their offerings and they repented and they're actually listening to what God had to say. And that was when God decided it was time to, to usher in the judgment on Benjamin. Well, that's not enough. They've defeated Benjamin's army, and only 600 men out of the entire tribe are still alive. And they've ran up into some mountains, and they're hiding. And so all of the tribes decide that they're going to wipe Benjamin off the face of the earth. And they turn around, and they go back and kill everything. They kill everything. I encourage you to read this chapter because it's kind of an interesting uh, read of all of the things that happened. But in closing of verse chapter 20 and verse 48, the men of Israel turned back against the other Benjaminites and killed them with their swords. The entire city, the animals, and everything that remained. And they also burned down all the cities that remained. In this section, no one is named except Phineas. We're getting ready to read this last chapter, and it's a short one. 
But what we're going to see is that, you know, like at my job, somebody will do something wrong, and they'll they'll make some rule that will make sure that it will it could never possibly ever happen again. And it's just some kind of an overkill blanket rule. You know, it's kind of like if you know someone ate an ice cream cone and some ice cream ran down their hand on the seat. So from now on, there's no ice cream. <laughs> you know, that's how my job is. That's what they do. No more ice cream. And uh, so this is kind of what happened. You know, these guys that were in Gibeah were out of control, and they needed to answer for what they did. But the entire tribe, and then the entire tribe decides to defend them and protect them and not turn them over to justice. And so they brought judgment on themselves. And so there really was judgment on the tribe of Benjamin. But these guys, they decided that they were just going to wipe them out, kill everybody. Benjamin wasn't going to exist anymore. And we're going to read that they actually took an oath that they would never let any of their kids, their women, marry anybody from Benjamin. And just in case anybody survives, we're going to take an oath. Nobody's going to marry their kids. We're going to make sure that Benjamin ceases to exist within one generation. A little bit of an overkill. And then after they do this, they realize that Benjamin's gone. They've wiped out a tribe. And then they all start crying and weeping. And they turn to God and they say, how could something like this ever happen? Chapter 21, verse 1. The men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah. None of us will give his daughter to a Benjamite in marriage. So the people went to Bethel and they sat there before God until evening. They wept loudly and bitterly and they cried out, Why, Lord God of Israel, has it occurred that one tribe is missing in Israel today? I don't know the answer. It's a really tough question. I don't know how this could happen. The next day, the people got up early. They built an altar there and they offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And the Israelites asked, Who of all the tribes of Israel didn't come to the Lord with the assembly? For a great oath had been taken that anyone who had not come to the Lord at Mizpah would certainly be put to death. In other words, when the body parts were sent out, all of the tribes agreed to convene. And there was a great oath taken that if anybody in Israel who does not come to the meeting will be put to death. And so here we can see that these men are looking for a loophole. They've created a, a, a tragic situation where they've killed everybody. They've killed all the men, women, and children of Benjamin. And now they feel bad about it because they don't want Benjamin to be gone. Well, what do you know? There's 600 guys, 600 men of this army that are still holed up in the hills. We could give them some wives, but we've swore to God that we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't give our kids to Him. What are we going to do? And so they're looking for a loophole. I've been told that W.C. Fields was reading the Bible one time and his friends were shocked and they said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for loopholes. This is exactly what they're doing. So this is why they're asking this question. Who of all Israel didn't come to the Lord uh, with the assembly? Who didn't make it? Verse 6, But the Israelites had compassion on their brothers, the Benjamites, and they said, 
Today a tribe has been cut off from Israel. What should we do about wives for the survivors? We've sworn to the Lord not to give them any of our daughters as wives. And they said, which city among the tribes of Israel didn't come to the Lord at Mizpah? And it turned out that no one from Jabesh Gilead had came to the camp and the assembly. For when the people were counted, no one was there from the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. So the congregation sent 12,000 brave warriors there and they commanded them, go and kill the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the sword, including women and children. But this is what you should do. Completely destroy every male as well as every female who has slept with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not had sex, sexual relations with a man. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh in the land of Canaan. So they've killed everybody and kidnapped these 400 girls. The whole congregation sent a message of peace to the Benjamites who were at the rock of Remen, these 600 men who were hiding. So Benjamin returned at that time and Israel gave them the women that they had kept alive from Jabez Gilead. But there wasn't enough for them. There's still 200 women short. So the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made this gap in the tribes of Israel. So the elders of the congregation said, what should we do about the wives uh, for those who are left since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, there must be heirs for the survivors of Benjamin so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. But we can't give them our daughters as wives. The Israelites had sworn anyone who gives a wife to Benjamin is cursed. And then isn't this disgusting? This says, look, there's an annual festival to the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Then they commanded the Benjamites, these surviving, the 200 guys who don't have wives, go and hide in the vineyards, watch, and when you see the young women of Shiloh come out to perform the dances, each of you leave the vineyards and catch a wife for yourself from the young women of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or brothers come out to protest, we will tell them, show favor to them since we did not get enough wives for each of them in the battle. You didn't actually give the women to them. They were taken. So you're not actually guilty of breaking your oath. So the Benjamites did this and they took the number of women they needed from, from the dancers they caught and they went back to their own inheritance, rebuilt their cities and lived in them. At that time, each of the Israelites returned from there to his own tribe and family. Each returned from there to his own inheritance. In, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As we, as we come to the conclusion in the book of Judges, and as we come to the conclusion of what's just happened here, I have some closing observations. Four of them. A couple of them are real short. So. The first one has to do with women. That's central to everything we've just read. Everything that's happened here is ridiculous. It is the farthest thing from God's established order in marriage, in relationships, in how we're supposed to treat each other. And the hypocrisy of everyone getting so bent out of shape of what happened to this innocent concubine and then 
turning around and doing all of this stuff, destroying all of the women and children of Benjamin, going to Jabesh Gilead and destroying all of those women and children, taking women from Jabesh Gilead, taking women from Shiloh, basically forcing them into something, basically doing the same thing they were so outraged over. Being the head of the house is not a position of power, it's a position of responsibility and sacrifice and service. And so this is not an indictment on the patriarch system. It's just trying to show us that what happened was, was terrible. And it's terrible because here's the point. Godly men don't treat women like that. That's not how you do it. A man is supposed to serve his family and everything he does is for them. He's at their disposal. And uh, that way uh, the woman, uh, the wife, the, the children can follow his leadership because they know that everything he is doing is in their best interest. That's God's established order. The farthest thing from anything we've just read. A disgusting opposite. Besides in the movie, my big fat Greek wedding, uh, Tula, she wanted to take computer classes to help out her family business. They own an, uh, a Greek restaurant called the Dancing Zorbas. And so she went to her dad and she asked for permission to take these computer classes. And he said, no, absolutely not. He had some pretty dumb reasons. But the wife, she said, she, she comforted her and she said, Tula, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And the neck turns the head wherever she wants. <laughs> so that's point number one. Secondly, uh, this, this repeated phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, there's a philosophical phrase that's old. It says that, if God doesn't exist, then everything is permissible. It carries the idea that if there is no God, then there is no standard. You set your standard. Truth is relative. In other words, truth is what you decide it is. You know, you, you don't operate in fear of divine punishment. You don't operate in, in uh, you're not motivated by divine approval or divine disapproval. You've decided what's right and wrong. And that's why there's so much selective outrage in the book of Judges. That's why there's so much selective outrage in the United States. And that's why you get so outraged when you see somebody else doing something wrong but you're not so outraged about the things that you do wrong. You want grace and mercy, but judgment on them. It's selective outrage. And it stems from God not being your central authority. That's, that's the result. Our nation has the same problem and with the same results. In our country today, 
wrong is excused or wrong is called right and there's incredible pressure for everyone to for everyone to agree with that our country was based upon a christian heritage Proverbs 14.34 tells us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. We can walk away from our Christian heritage and we start to look like the book of Judges. Any nation. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. But we are Christians, and so we are in contrast to our culture. There should be something different about us. And we saw this in the book of Judges and in the book of Ruth. We saw the godly remnant in the book of Ruth. That in the middle of all of this, there was, there was people who were living for God. They were in direct contrast to everything else that was going on around them. At the end of this incredible period of Judges, we come to the man Samson. We find out that his mom and dad feared God, and they hadn't moved off to Dan. They were still back in the land God had given them, in the land of their inheritance. And in the midst of everything we've been studying, there are contemporary people, Caleb and Othniel and Axa, that lived for God, living in contrast to our culture. We're supposed to be different. And the third point is involving this Levite. Uh, a Levite is introducing each one of these two sections about the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Benjamin. And I think that that's because it's showing us right off the bat that the country is in spiritual decline. And if your life is not in order, every, if your heart's not in the right place, everything is going to be in disarray. So we see that the Levitical system is in disarray. And so it lets us know that the spiritual life of the nation was out of order. You know, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. These last five chapters show us what it looks like when a person's heart is not yielded to God. That's what it's showing us. Finally, the tribe of Benjamin. Whatever happened to the tribe of Benjamin? Benjamin was the youngest son. He was the, the smallest tribe, especially after this. Whatever happened to Benjamin? Well, we remember that everything we just read happened at the beginning of the period. And uh, incidentally, You'll remember as we went through the book of Judges when there was different things that would happen and they would call out to the other tribes to come and help and some of the tribes would come and some of them wouldn't at all. Some of them really did some thinking and thought, oh, I'm not sure about this one. Well, this sheds light on that, doesn't it? This happened at the beginning of the period. No wonder the tribes of Israel were a little bit gun-shy every time somebody blew the bullhorn and said, come on, let's go fight. Obviously, you would have some reluctance and you'd be thinking, is God really in this? Well, we remember that the very first judge is Othniel. We just talked about him. He's in the very beginning of this period. 
Well, when Othniel died, Moab ruled from Jericho for 18 years. And this is the last point, so hang in, hang in with me. But you remember that Eglon was the king. He was a really heavy-set man, and, and uh, Ehud was a left-handed Benjamite. And he was the one who snuck in there, ran that, ran that sword into his stomach. It was a Benjamite that did that. And we'll remember that after he assassinated Eglon, he rallied the troops, but he didn't call on Benjamin because Benjamin barely existed. That's why he called on Ephraim. If you remember in Judges chapter 3. Saul was the first king. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. We remember when the Israelites find themselves captive in Persia and they're going to be exterminated. It's Mordecai and Esther who God used to rescue the nation. They're from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Apostle Paul. God promised His solution for us to come through Abraham. And then Abraham had Isaac, so now it's through Isaac. And then Isaac had Jacob, and so now it's through Jacob. But Jacob had 12 sons, so which one of the 12 sons is this promise going to come through? We have to wait until Jacob is on his deathbed. In Genesis chapter 49, we find out that it's going to come through Judah. And so when the nation of Israel split, Jeroboam and Rehoboam after Solomon died, the ten tribes of Israel defected from Judah. But the tribe of Benjamin stayed. Let's pray.